Hello, hello. Welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind. Two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lara, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. And it's been a little while. Uh, we missed a couple of weeks, uh, but we are back. We are back. We are fantastic. And we're ready to go on the attack, <laughs> sort of. Um, I like that. A, a whole bunch yeah. of things actually happened. You know, often, right. often I, I feel like we'll do one episode, another episode, and then nothing happens. But I feel like a lot of history kind of happened in the space there, particularly one thing which we may touch on briefly later, depending on how things go. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, an interesting time. So, Gabriel, you want to first talk about some things that have been brewing in your brain over the last couple of, of days, uh, your, your, over the last week. So well, what, what's, what's yeah. cooking? Yeah, I mean, I think probably fair to say that uh, we we missed a week on this, um, mm. and uh, that's because uh, I went to a funeral. A friend of mine passed away. Uh, young person, beautiful person, mother of a one-year-old child. Um, I think uh, uh, it was just difficult, and. Um, and uh, good to be back and, you know, uh, been uh, g- going through things. It's been interesting. I don't want to talk about that, but I, I do see the the a kind of uh, curious irony in that the world, um, or so much of the English-speaking world, has been uh, thinking about death uh, with unusual intensity uh, because of mm. the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And I think that's what we'll mm. get back to. But um, just in terms of this week, um we're recording this on sunday on friday we submitted our the institute of race relations made its submission to parliament opposing the unlawful entering on premises bill which i think is interesting just to touch on yeah there's there's been quite a lot of talk and quite a lot of of panic i think in some quarters about about this bill uh so so what's in the submission yeah well so i mean this is one of the i think maybe you know, my mom introduced me to this bill, actually, in the sense that um, I was hanging out with her a few weeks ago, and she said, check out this WhatsApp that someone's forwarded to me. Where someone oh, that would is, explain why this kind of came up from the grassroots. Yes, I think there was a very successful, very viral, and it was then written about um, WhatsApp, uh, where um, sort of young woman says, there's this new bill coming along, it's the new trespasser uh, law, and... Uh, she says a bunch of things. She says, like, it means you can't get rid of trespassers yourself. Private security companies can't get rid of trespassers. Only the police can do it. And that's obviously not great because the police are often slow. And then she right. also says that it says anyone can <laughs> come into your property if they think they deserve to come there. So if, if you like making a braai and it smells delicious and, and someone smells it and they're like, well, I, I'm hungry and they come along in, then they can uh, do so. Uh, they've got a legal reason. Which is kind of absurd, but uh, you know, scary, and that thing did the rounds. And the and the the Department of I think this bill was tabled by the Department of uh, Justice and Progressive Constitutionalism, or what's it called? We've got the Ronald Mueller's Department. Yes, thank you. Mm. <laughs> so uh, they put out a statement addressing this WhatsApp, which they somehow managed to get deleted from um, Facebook and uh, Twitter. And uh, I don't think you can delete it from WhatsApp, but I think they managed to make it more difficult to send it around to larger numbers of people. They sort of flagged that right. WhatsApp's got a kind of fake news flag thing. 
Yeah, yeah. So that hasn't happened in South Africa in a while. Um, anyway, yes. the, that little uh, WhatsApp, it wasn't an accurate, it, it was not the world's most precise reflection of what's going on there. Um, right. And it is kind of frustrates me a little bit because I think it's not worth anyone's time. Yeah, the government, to, the government plays silly buggers a lot with our constitutional rights, particularly around property. And so it's not particularly helpful when you put out stuff that can be easily rebutted because now anytime a piece of legislation comes out like this, people's first reaction, if they got burned by this is going to be, Oh, well, I mean, is it really that bad? Hold on. I'm going to wait and see yeah. because yeah. 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 So, so it is not, I mean, just straight up, it there's it doesn't change anything about self-defense. You know, I, I think anyone who's heard about this already will already have heard the rebuttal, but just to be clear. Right. And there, there was an attempt to change the self-defense rules and that got defeated. Uh, yes. it, it got quietly withdrawn after the government realized that um, abolishing the right to self-defense as a reason to own a firearm was not as terrible as an idea as it was uh after the July, before the July riots. So the, they tabled this bill, which says you're not allowed to own a firearm for self-defense. Then the July riots happened. And then they quietly withdrew and it. And then they never like, mentioned it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe uh, it needs to be, uh, yeah, there needs to be some technical details figured out. Yeah. Oh, 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 cough, cough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they literally, like the conference call that was supposed to have be one of the committee meetings about it, they were like, ah, oh, the signal's not, mm, the signal's not. Uh, 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 uh. And then just never rescheduled. <laughs> Amazing. So, so this, so this wasn't going to do do that. No, it was not going to do that. And so, and so that was an exaggeration. The Bryflace thing, I don't think was was. I think she said that tongue in cheek, and it was right. a good metaphor for for what is actually a problem, um, which is that it just it just makes the it it changes the language from the Trespassers Act to. Just make it a little bit more vague. So, so in the Trespassers Act, mm. it says you can't go onto someone's property unless you've got permission, or if you're doing it for a lawful reason. So, you know, it's like if someone's farm is burning down, and you're a farmer, and you call them and you can't get hold of them, you're going to go onto their farm to put out the fire. That and right. that is a lawful reason to to trespass, as it were. So you can't be convicted for trespassing if you're putting out a fire on someone. Right. Else's or farm. if there's like you know uh, a child drowning in a pool. Yeah. And you see it, you're not gonna, <laughs> you know, not do anything. Ooh, I might get in trouble for trespassing. Well, you might, you might. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, Nick, I'm, I'm making fun of you because <laughs> I know you hate swimming. And being no, outside. I don't actually. You, mind you might not be. I there just hate being outside. Place. Look, yeah, I wouldn't be there in the first place. But if yeah. hypothetically, in this crazy future world that doesn't exist, you if I was outside walking on the streets, <laughs> I would save the child. Then you would save the child. Totally, yes. And it would not be against the law because the yes. law says, you know, lawful purpose. And then they change it to say if someone believes that they had um, an interest or a title, which just makes it a little bit like, well, is that still an objective test? Um, right. No, it's partly about their belief. So there's some subjectivity, but there's, you know, it just it just sort of becomes like a test that both has an objective element and a subjective element. And it does seem prone to exploitation, right. especially in the case. There's a fair amount of fuzz influence introduced yeah. into the law, then. Yeah, and there's and there are these people who like take land. I've talked about it before. I've been to places. I just revisited one where you know, like people are illegally selling land and building houses and stuff. So then there's like title deeds. Like someone wrote in a napkin, like, "Hey, dude, this is a 
this is your you know my neighbor says i live here so now it's mine too because people are double selling the same plots and stuff so right. so then someone says well i've got a legal title to be here because of someone wrote on a napkin that this is mine and then you end up taking someone else's house that's not really and hijack buildings in town have already long gone through similar things so it's not great to kind of validate that anyway i don't want to get stuck in the whole thing but the point is that um the the, the bill really is very um dangerous i feel very i feel like it is an honor in a way to have been allowed to do some of the writing on the submission it's now like i've done quite a few submissions to parliament this year like i gave it to my colleague anthea jeffrey and she fixed it up and you know it's nice to see how like someone with a phd in legal studies um improves the parliamentary submission um right. but the yeah the things the thing the, i think just to just to say to people the thing that worries me especially is how the bills that are in play and the, and one of the acts that are in play, how they interact. Uh, so it's like each one of them, I think, really is bad. And if you read that whole submission, whew, it's 20 pages of, you know, I remember reading Edgar Allan Poe when I was 21 in the dark, you know, three in the morning, sort of like probably quite stoned and ready to be paranoid and, you know, like, <laughs> it's like scary stuff. And it's like metaphysically challenging. And it's like a little bird lands in your window and it's, you, it's a crow and it's come to eat the eyeballs out of your skull. And, <laughs> <laughs> very little that's messages. That's the, quote the Raven. Never yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Dude, this is just as scary as this is at least as scary as the scariest movie you've ever seen. But so, but so, let me just say what the pieces are, and that's just this act. But then there are these several acts. Okay. So, so this, the, the the first thing to know is that the expropriation bill says if it becomes a law, it says the government can take away your title deed if other people have already taken away the use of your property. So it right. says if you've lost control of your property, then you've abandoned it. So someone you still invades there, your property. You're saying, I want it. You I call the it. cops and you say, guys, please help me. And they go, mm, maybe, nah. And they don't show up. And then the government says, oh, well, you've lost control. Bye. Yeah. And they take it out. So if you lost control, that is a reason for expropriation without compensation. Section 12.3C of the expropriation bill, look it up. Um, the 2020 bill, the one that's actually before parliament, not the 2015 one, whole bunch of people, even like uh, journalists that I've spoken to have, you know, I've, I've made this comment on TV and radio and like YouTube podcasts and like some people are like, nah, dude, it doesn't say that. They're looking at the 2015 bill, which was withdrawn. 2021, 12.3, it says expropriation without compensation properties where you've lost control. Uh, so then what about the losing control process? Well, the trespassers bill effectively says maybe there's this test where if someone trespasses, they haven't committed a crime if they think they deserve the property, if they believe that they deserve it. And so I'm saying that's a difficult test. It's a bit vague, like how you're going to apply it. Well, it's going to come down to the judge, really, in a way. And who's the judge going to be? Well, the land court bill says that those kinds of things, trespassing, is no longer going to be evaluated by the high courts and the Supreme Court of Appeals. Instead, it's going to be at the land court and the land Supreme Court of Appeals. And... Uh... If, if, if that doesn't already right? make you <laughs> yeah as someone who doesn't comfy. understand the legal system correctly properly because of my disdain for it <laughs> so this doesn't fill me with with confidence this doesn't fill me with warm feelings so the land court bill also wants to change the land courts to add two assessors so there'll be a judge which is appointed 
through the judicial process. And look, I'm not always happy about the courts, but at least they're supposed to be independent. Right. But how it's going to be in the land court if this bill gets put into law is that you get one judge and two assessors, and the assessors are openly land activists that are have vested interests in the cases. And mm. like the people that are already in the assessor's positions, like, you know, outright racial Marxists, you know, black first, land first types mm. who, who, oh, who do not believe in property rights for, they don't believe in property rights for black people um, or any other people. Property rights for anyone, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And they, and, they, and they tend to exhibit a kind of racial hostility to anyone who doesn't fit into their favorite category for the day. So not the most reliable fellows. And the land courts bill says that they get to outvote the judge on adjudicating matters of fact. Well, then what's the point of the judge? Uh, well, he gets one vote. There's two assessors. I'll tell you what the point of the judge is. The point of the judge is to smear a little sliver of legitimacy over this farce. A little, a little fig leaf of civility in front of two, uh, (laughs) two crazy nuts. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, 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 so firstly, the, you know, the land court, the the new trespass bill says, you know, he has this new vague test. It's going to be up to the judge to kind of decide. Then the land court bill says, oh, well, the judge is really going to be two assessors that are going to be crazy land court activists. Okay. So this kind of basically paves the way for people being able to break into other people's property, get into other people's property and not be convicted of anything. Then the Pie Act, which is already in place, says that you can't evict someone once they've settled in. Um, and all it takes to settle in is to take off your clothes, basically. Uh, right. You, you need can't to, evict you need someone. To, you, you can evict them, but you need a court order and you need to provide them with alternative accommodation and, 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 and. Yeah. You can't do it. You can't evict them without going through at least eight months and probably years and buying something else. Or you don't have to buy them something else. You can wait for the state to do that, but then they won't move <laughs> your until the state age. does that. Yes. <laughs> And you have to pay the rates. You have to pay the rates in the water and the electricity in the meanwhile. So, yes. so you know that the police will come if you try and evict them for breaking the the Pi Act. Uh, so that's the kind of that's the that's the sort of messy um, coalition of things. The tres- the new trespass bill, the new land court bill, the Pi Act, and then the expropriation bill together kind of give you four steps beginning to end that incentivize land grabs and disincentivize um, uh, trying to resist it uh, by saying, if you try and resist it, the police will block you. And at the end of it all, uh, if you fail to resist it, uh, we're going to take, the government will take away your title deed. So that's right. really so rather than, disturbing. And, yeah, rather than taking a sledgehammer straight to the constitution and just abolishing the right to private property, essentially, this is more like a death by a thousand cuts kind of approach. And, and my problem is you know, I think South Africans are a bit tired and feeling a bit poor a lot of people and you know, middle class pe- people who can I don't know, there's just it's it, this feels harder to fight than when we were fighting against the amendment to the constitution. Because mm. it is in different pieces. Because it is death by a thousand cuts. It's, it's not one lightning rod. I mean, in a way, the expropriation bill is just one lightning rod. But it is more Right, it's the worst, but but it's yeah, the whole the whole thing is a is a bit of a disastrous mess. Yeah. So anyway, so that's like, um, I, it is also kind of fascinating though because to figure out how these things all fitted together kind of required reading all of these acts and seeing the little subcategory sections. You know, I told Nick about how there was one bit where I was like, I wonder if I actually have this right. 
Um, and then I had to go read on page 29, Schedule B, the very last section of it, where you've got these like pages, like 20 pages of tables, and then of other laws that are affected by this law. And one of the things on the land court bill is it says it's going to change the Pi Act, the Evictions Act, to say that all evictions will be managed by the land court. Like that's a little detail buried in a footnote. Um, mm. But it but it kind of also gives the game away when you find it uh, that you know that that there is a that there's method to this that you know the, the uh, uh, puzzle pieces fit together um, and and I'm and I've, this is I'm not appealing to a conspiracy theory I've read the ANC Umrah Bulla documents they've made it very clear that this is what they want <laughs> <Yes. laughs> so yeah it's not really a conspiracy theory it's the policy of the ruling party yeah it's not exactly sleuthing but it is kind of no. weird I, I mean. <laughs> Like, dude, we live in a weird country in terms of um, what gets taken seriously. This is a bit of a tangent, but like, you know, dear MP Michael Cardo and this and this professor wrote a thing in the uh, uh, Business Day, sort of saying Julius Malema can't be a fascist, um, kind of because he's not smart enough. Was the headline? <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, hell's teeth, guys! Oh my god, yeah, you're no, missing, is, dude. He can't be a fascist because he's a communist, like. And they didn't mention the word communist. They were like, you know, for a fact, he can't be a fascist because he's too nice to, to trade unions. <laughs> so have you, the EFF manifesto starts with there should be no property rights. You know, we should, we should take all the private property and divide it equally. I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure there were fascist trade unions as well. As, as an aside, I know that's not your point here, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they were. Anyways, so it's like the ANC actually is aligned with the Communist Party and it's rice the dinguses. And, and anyway, so my, yeah, the, the one liner to sum it all up for me is that, you know, Ramaphosa says he promised us, and I believe him, uh, that he he's going to do everything he can to stop smash and grab land grabs. Hmm. It's not, he said it's not going to be smash and grab. And it's right. He's, he's removed the smash. Uh, <laughs> it is going to be legitimate. It is going to be as... Legal. Legal, legal as possible. It is going to be like Venezuela, not like Zimbabwe. I mean, you get right. once you get in the toilet bowl and you press flush, like you, it, it ends up the same way. Uh, so, but it's yeah. But it's, no, uh, so th th a this very is a thing, different style. Very different. If you style. go and you read more intellectual ANC people, I mean, I've come across this before, and I can't remember where, but the sort of the talk, the vibe you seem to get is, look, 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 look. Zimbabwe is not a model we want to follow. Not because anything they did was in some way disastrous in of itself, but just because they kind of let the whole thing get a little bit too out of hand and go too quickly. Yeah. And so we're gonna we're gonna make sure everything is ordered. And it was because that's the problem with the destruction of of, of of property rights is that it's just a little bit it's a little bit helter skelter decentralized. And you know the ANC yeah. hates anything that's decentralized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was way too. It was way too grassroots for the ANC. They didn't like. It. Yeah, exactly. No, they'd much prefer to have have uh, the commissars driving around and deciding which piece of land. Also, it's you know, can you imagine the mess to the patronage network that's going to occur if everyone just goes and starts grabbing every piece of property they want? Yeah. Like it could unbalance things. You need to have the, a proper process so that yeah. uh, the power structures can be <laughs> maintained. The patronage <laughs> network keeps going. Yeah, yeah. It must all reinforce that. In fact, that's yeah. That, that would be the best. So, yeah, dude. Okay, so that's one thing. And I just, just one other thing from my week is that Elena, uh, my partner on Friday, two days ago, she flew to the UK to give a presentation at the University of Leeds um, uh, uh, at a philosophy conference. Um, 
about sort of practical ethics and identity and so on. And she 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 talked about this idea that we've sort of rushed roughly discussed. Um, I think she's taken it to a really like proper. She's made it like work, right. like philosophy work. Yeah, uh, our, our version our version wasn't good enough for a philosophy conference, but <laughs> no. But sort of roughly, the idea is that um, it's very important that people don't kill people, persons, um, right. uh, if it, it can be avoided really uh, you know, so self-defense and whatever okay so that like that's like a basic moral claim it's an uncontroversial claim but it's one that kind of gets lost from the abortion debate because most people i think are aware that it's hard to like everyone's drawn a line pretty much everyone's drawn their own line like they've got their idea about when it becomes a person um like life life is a bad word you know pro-life pro-choice that's stupid because like life clearly has no moral weight you can you can kill um, a rat you can go to a supermarket and buy things to kill life also everything else that you're buying was alive and it was killed for you to eat it including the carrots if you're a vegetarian um there's nothing wrong with stamping on mushrooms uh to get where you're going yeah but life if we wanted to if we wanted personhood, to make the personhood matters, if we, not life, if we wanted but. to make the political identifiers accurate we'd have to make it the group who wants uh, uh, fetuses not to be considered human beings and therefore capable of being killed, and the group who doesn't, who thinks that fetuses are in fact human beings and therefore should have the protection of law, yes. doesn't really roll no, that, off the tongue, does it? <laughs> no, and and it's wrong because human beings not right. You must say person, person, because person. person is the in the Constitution of South Africa, for example, it doesn't say human okay. beings have these rights. It says all you persons see, have these rights. Even my attempt to to to, to make it silly. Was was incorrect. No, even your attempt to make it accurate for <laughs> too long. Yes, still... <laughs> no, dude, it is. It's hard to talk about, and it doesn't roll off the tongue. And I get why the, but so, anyway. So the thought is that um, that that line should be respected, um, but that much, but that people should be expected to stick to their own line. So instead of the government mm -hmm. drawing the same line for everyone, it sort of draws a zone. So it says before this, it's definitely not a person. Like you can't like. Un, like semen and eggs that are separate, that's definitely not a person. Um, and after a certain point, and I don't want to say exactly where, but like clearly by by the time a baby's born, like it's definitely a person. Um, so it'll draw, uh, you know, set parameters. I think narrower than that, I would suggest, but anyway. Um, but then within those parameters, if the woman says this is a person, then she can have an elective abortion. And if she says no, sorry, if she says this is not a person, she, I believe that what I'm carrying is not a person. She can have an elective abortion. And if, she believe, if she's not prepared to say that, then she can't have an elective abortion. She could still have an abortion uh, for health reasons um, and consensual reasons will also figure into that equation um, in, in terms of rape cases. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how. Uh, I've, I have to read what Elena's got. But anyway, um, the, the, the basic idea is, is, you know, like in war time in in world war ii you had to go if you were in america or uk or whatever you had to go kill nazis um but some people said i really don't believe in killing nazis like i don't believe in killing anyone i'm a pacifist religiously and they didn't go to jail uh you had a conscientious objector um category and if you lied about it you said, well what if people just lie they you know well okay maybe some people will get away with it but it sends a signal to society and some people don't get away with it uh, they lie and they get caught and then they face consequences for lying and getting caught. Um, so that's like another example of conscientious abortion. Like you should just, you, you must set your own line and then you must stick to it. 
uh, conscientious objections like that. It's also a little bit like the start of kind of modern politics, um, democratic constitutional style politics after a hundred years of war um, in Europe. Um, uh, after the you know Catholic and Protestant beef started, and it's <laughs> a pretty euphemistic way of putting that. <laughs> and yeah, and unlike unlike with the original schism, uh, where the where the modus vivendi ended up being okay, Orthodox churches on the east, Catholic churches on the west, um, and you can't be one in the other. Um, there's a de- geographical division of Christendom. The, the 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 modus vivendi was much better. It was tolerance. It's like you can get a tax deduction for 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 praying your way and donating money your way, and you can get a tax deduction for praying your way and going your way. Or at the very least, the government is going to be neutral. It's not going to draw the line about what kind of hat you should wear or what kind of where your cross should be on your shirt or under your shirt. There are lines to draw that people that that have as high a stake as anything you can believe in, um, uh, and the government. But there's no reasonable way to settle the decision, and so the government stays out of it. And this is sort of a way to try and achieve that because I am a I, I I take the tragic view that people are never going to persuade one another of where to draw the line. Some people are always going to say it where the heartbeat is. Some people are always going to say it's when you get feelings. Some people are always going to say viability outside the womb. Some people are always going to say conception. Some people are always going to say once there's 32 cells, so you've gotten past the point of potential twinning. You know, there's at least five interesting lines that have already been um, like little tent poles, you know, people have gathered under them separately. And I don't think that there's a scientific reason to budge from one to the other because personhood is ultimately a legal and moral concept rather than a scientific concept. And the the science can't tell you um, exactly what the speed limit should be. Uh, Yes, And and that's always annoys me when, when either side of this debate tries to appeal to quote unquote, the science. Yeah. Uh, and you do see that sometimes in the activist rhetoric. Also, yeah. No, the science shows that we're clearly right. It's like, no, the, no. <laughs> the science about what a person is does not exist. <laughs> you miscategorized a, in, the, in the first instance, yeah. As you, you, you know the famous, the, the, the story which may or may not be true about Diogenes and Plato, about God. behold a man. So Plato is trying to define a man. And he comes up with featherless biped. Hmm. So Diogenes, deciding, being the troll that he is, history's first troll. Ultimate troll. What a troll. <laughs> deciding to mock uh, uh, Plato, uh, interrupts one of his, uh, what is it, what does he call them, symposiums or whatever, in the yeah. marketplace, announcing, behold, a man, and in his hand he holds a chicken with all of the f- uh, feathers that have been plucked from it. <laughs> a feathers <laughs> chicken. Biped. Little plucked chicken over here. <laughs> yeah dude it's a it's a prank it's a good prank i also like the one where he goes around where they catch him walking around i, I think he might have was naked um with a lantern in the middle of the day as dodgenies tended to be <laughs> but there was like the candle wasn't on it was like a very odd situation but he's like you holding the lantern out in front of him and peering into the market like in the middle of the day and they said what are you doing uh your lantern doesn't see like what's going on here he said I am searching for an honest man. <laughs> <laughs> Candles out on that search. You need a candle. Yeah. Sunshine is not going to illuminate that characteristic of things. But, <laughs> but the candle doesn't work either. <laughs> 
anyway, so Elena gave the conference talk. Um, I obviously wasn't there and there wasn't a recording, but I, I got a little bit of feedback here and there. And and uh, the first thing she said, she got she was under fire. Um, there were a couple of professors that uh, were just drilling her. She her question and answer time completely swallowed up all of the question and answer time for another one of the um, presenters. Uh, that's so that's she, a good sign, no? <laughs> yeah, she was. Well, she kind of stole the show. And then at the like cocktail party and at the at the dinner afterwards, like all day conference. Um, I think, yeah, I think she, I think she was, she did kind of steal the show, and uh, someone said that. Um, anyway, one maybe the ranking professor, uh, if you could describe it that way, had said, you know, I've been thinking about this all afternoon, and like, I still definitely think you're wrong. Like, I can't agree with you. He's like a very pro-abortion uh, kind of dude. Um, they said, I can't figure out why. Like, I th- I'm going to have to think about this for months. <laughs> there must be a mistake somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the best compliment. And then he said, and you know, like, and I reflected on it. Like, the one thing that is clear is that you're going to get a lot of flack from the left and from the right. Like, like they're, yeah. they're both going to go after you. Um, so then uh, Elena and I agreed. Um, we're radical centrists. And our slogan should be, we're surrounded. <laughs> <laughs> but like with a smiley face like we're done with that that's okay um we're always surrounded <laughs> anyway so i think she did really well and i'm very glad and and i've and i've already we've we've had much longer discussions about this thing i'm sorry to have taken yes. longer than i intended to actually to 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 recap the idea without really getting into the the syllogisms that make it persuasive if it is um but anyway so i'm glad about that yeah so what do you want to do now? Should we talk about the US or, or, or Her Majesty? I think maybe maybe let's do it in that order. Let's talk about the United States and then All we'll right. wrap it up so, with, the, with the Queen. You know, the, one of the big questions I think right now in in uh, American politics and of course global uh, and global politics because they, they flow so closely together is uh, what exactly is going to be the result of the midterms? That is uh, the Senate and House elections in in the U.S., which are in November of this year. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in American politics uh, as a U.S. Yeah, I, but let me, let me I've jump been following this quite closely. I haven't been following this, but I've been way distracted. So I'm keen to kind of uh, get some updates. Yeah. So until quite recently, there was a very clear story which I thought was completely correct, which is that. Uh, the Republicans are absolutely going to walk away with it. They're going to smash the Democrats. It's going to be a rut. Yeah. Um, and they're going to take control of probably the Senate and also the House. The House for, some reason, for some reason, people don't talk about a red wave. Like when the Democrats are looking like they're going to destroy the Republicans, it's like a blue wave of coming. No, no, you just, like, you see, on, a wave on the, on, in the conservative media, they do talk about a red wave. In fact, do some they? of the Trumpy candidates have been literally paying for ads where I think there was one of the the, the really Trumpy ones uh, in Arizona. Her, one of her general election ads was her and Devin Nunes and Trump literally surfing a red wave onto a beach. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm not sure how that really convinces anyone, but whatever. Um, that's not my Yeah, I, I mean, I thought part of the problem was some people in my – I know some of the ladies in my family, um, the, their first reference to red wave is uh, is menstruation. 
uh, <laughs> sort of like a yeah, or, or some sort of apocalyptic tide of blood across the land when there's like <laughs> there'll be a red wave of darkness over the country. Yeah, so it's not it's not the greatest, but uh, whatever. Anyway, um, but that was the promise, right? Like a, a yes, wave that was of lobsters, the promise. Like a mountain, an Everest of lobsters is going to cruise over all of America and. And Indeed. To the Senate. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, first among them is the fact that Joe Biden has very low approval ratings. Yeah. Um, in fact, his approval ratings are very similar to Donald Trump's. <laughs> They're both kind of around 40% approved. In fact, Joe Biden even went lower. He went down to sort of 38, 37 at one point. Um, and, and most of the country, uh, somewhere around 50% disapprove, which is pretty bad. Uh but then, also there was inflation. There still is inflation, obviously, but but the, that was really hitting home. And yeah, it just looked like a sort of perfect storm. And then a whole bunch of things started to happen. The Supreme Court came up with the Dobbs decision, which said that it's up to the states to decide on the abortion laws rather than, uh, you know, what the, uh, uh, rather than it just being uh, mandated by the court as a constitutional right. Then... Um, there have been a couple of little elections all over the place, uh, one in Alaska where uh, Sarah Palin was running for a House seat, um, and in part due to the fact that there's ranked choice voting rather than first-past-the-post voting in Alaska. Uh, the, the Democrat candidate managed to eke it out there, I think to everyone's surprise, and it's the first time in quite a while that Alaska has elected a Democrat. So there was that election. There was a referendum in Kansas about whether the, the state constitution should be changed um, to allow more restrictive bans on abortion. And it was voted down. Now, Kansas is one of the reddest states in the U.S. And by 18 points or something, uh, the, the, the thing, I don't know, slightly less than that. It was, it was just it was over 10 points. Um, people basically said, no, no, we want to keep at least some legal protections for the practice of abortion. Yeah, um, there have been a bunch of little data points like this, and also the polling itself has has suggested, especially in the Senate races. So the Republicans are almost certainly still going to capture the the, the House of Representatives, but it looks like a lot of the uh, Senate races are getting pretty close now. Yeah, it's always been a year in which I think the Democrats were defending more territory than they were potentially going to take. Um, so this is also a bit of a surprise. Because, uh, you know, all things being equal, you'd expect the Republicans to pick up the Senate here. But now it looks it looks like it's going to be pretty close in a whole bunch of close-fought elections. Now, here's, here's one of the big questions that I don't have the answer to, which is, is there a polling bias? So in 2016 and 2020, the two big presidential elections, we did see a bit of a polling bias towards the Democrats. Uh, and there are various theories... Uh, announced for this. One of them is that the kind of person who votes for Trump is the kind of person who also doesn't respond to surveys. Um, Busy supporters theory, or shy supporters. Yeah. Yeah. Also just like because a lot of a lot of the, the most enthusiastic of Trump's base are sort of high school educated um, uh, white working class men um, who who uh, you can you can imagine in your mind a stereotype of that kind of person who hears who gets the phone call that says, "Hey, we want to sp- spend thirty minutes asking you questions about what you think about the country and who you're going to vote for." And he goes, "Nah," and puts the phone down, because yeah. um, <laughs> he's not doesn't have time for that. Yeah, uh, there's also some that that there's a general belief amongst Republicans that 
Poles can't be trusted and are traitorous and, and run by the, the deep state or something, and therefore you can't, uh, you shouldn't bother talking to pollsters because they're all just liars. So there's some reasons to think that this may be biased in front of Democrats. Um, Nate Silver, who's a very big proponent of, he's the 538 guy, that's the website. Yeah, we've talked about him before. Yeah, we've talked about him before. He says that there could be a polling bias, um, but he also points out that polling biases are not predictable, particularly. Um, in 2012, for example, the polling bias was in favor of Republicans. And in 2018, there wasn't a polling bias. It pretty much accurately predicted that the Democrats were going to have an all right year then. Uh, there was a polling bias in 2016 and 2020. But even then, we're kind of missing some of the detail here, which is that a state like Wisconsin, right, which is once again being fought over because I think there's a, there's a Senate race there, um, had a big polling miss. It was like, I think, 6% at least off uh, in favor of the Democrats. It was a very, very close thing, but the polls showed Biden at sort of like almost five, six points ahead. Um, but then you get to a state like Georgia and the polls were almost down to the decimal point, correct? So just because the polls are wrong in some places doesn't mean they're wrong in everywhere because the, the, the demographics are different, the way the companies collect the data are different, the amount of polling that gets done is different. So it's very difficult to say, I think, what's, what's going to happen. So some of the things that seem to be boosting the Democrats now is firstly this, this Dobbs thing, um, which, which in, it seems to have introduced a lot of... Can we talk games. about that a little bit before we jump to the other ones? Yeah, 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 sure. So I think... So, so if I'm following you rightly here, you're saying, you know, it looked like there was going to be a huge red wave. Then it looked like now it looks like it's uh, the Democrats are going to do surprisingly well, given the fact that they're in charge during a high inflation time with a very right. unpopular president, et cetera, et cetera. Precisely. But then you're saying also the polls, there's been uh, challenging Good polls, polls, polls and especially, especially if you... Um, get more specific and a lot of the you know these are very specific races for this congressional seat that senator position um some places the polls are good some places they aren't so we can't be too sure if if uh, if those are really reflecting the, the the state of play so that that kind of makes sense to me i do think the, the only thing that i have followed in american politics is the way that the abortion issue seems to be very good for the democrats um and bad for the Republicans. In other words, the court saying, you know, uh, your the people must vote for people who will make laws that determine how this issue is settled. Uh, that has been good for the Democrats because most people don't like the idea of banning all abortions, excepting for self-defense, from right. So, so, but, so this but is... conservative evangelical Christians have drawn their line. Like the, the 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 classic evangelical American Christian line is conception. So Republicans that are trying to hold on to that uh, pro-life vote, as it were, can't easily do anything else. So the Republicans are kind of stuck in a position that only twenty percent of the population support, whereas the Democrats can take the minority, the other extreme 20% who think you should be able to abort nine-month uh, late-term pregnancies. They've got, they, <laughs> yes. they've got the extreme, but they can also own the middle because the, the because there's no one to easily debate against uh, on the center-right for the for the center-lefties. It, now, it, there's it's, a very interesting it's, development it's, on it's that. Like, it, that changed like last week, by the way. 
Okay. Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's a slightly more complicated that... because the, the, the Republicans, I think, have not had to be very clear about what their position was. Their position was we want to overturn Roe v. Wade, which doesn't suggest what your next step is going to be in the legislative process, right? Does that mean a 15-week abortion ban? Does that mean a total ban except in this case or this case? Does that mean a total ban in all cases? What does it mean? You could read into it whatever you wanted. And suddenly the the, the, the Republicans won this legislate this judicial victory that they've been working towards um, uh, for a very long time, making the arguments about why Roe v. Wade was bad law. And I think that there was a little bit of, oh, we won, now what? And so, so let's combine this. Right. So I, I, I think that's probably part of it. I think there's another factor too. So, so the, as far as I can tell, the Republicans tabled a bill to say, let's, uh, let's, let's set a personhood bill to say, we're going to set the line nationally at something like 15 weeks. Yeah. Lindsey so, Graham specifically from, he's a Senator from South Carolina. Uh, yeah. That. So which Graham, which is also which in of itself is controversial on the right because a lot of people on the right say that it's not a federal issue so there shouldn't be a federal law and such a federal law would be unconstitutional in of itself so he's actually running against some of his own party on that line as well so how does this get covered in, so he so he wants to, he how does this get covered in the press uh in the in the left-wing press the new york times and so on that i read well it gets, uh, you know, they they quote Lindsey Graham <clears throat> at the top saying, you know, we want the states to decide within that window from conception to 15 weeks. Um, clearly, we are allowed to make federal determinations about life and death determinations about the law. Um, there's, there's no doubt in anyone's mind, in any jurisprudent experts mind that the feds can craft a law to ban the death penalty everywhere if they want to um uh or to say that uh, you know it'd be hard to say you have to do it they, i don't think they could do that um but they could say you can't do it for example um so it, it has it has a it has uh authority and jurisdiction those those questions are answered anyway he says the opening quotes he doesn't say all of that. He gives the precedent form, which is to say, you know, we've got the powers to do this. Um, I think it's the right thing to do. And that's where America is at. So in some states, they can, you know, set it at seven weeks, at some 12 weeks, at some 15 weeks. Um, but it, the, the idea that after 15 weeks, um, uh, it's no longer on is, is, a, is where America is at. Now, on my reading of the polls, that is an accurate, that is an accurate statement. I'm not saying by the way, at all, that that's where I would like to draw the line. Um, right. But no, I'm, that is, that is kind people, of... I don't have a line. Yeah. So where, where if, you, if, yeah, if you aggregate sort of how people feel about this when you ask them for specifics. Like if you ask people, oh, you're, are you pro-choice or pro-life? Something like 70% or 60% say, oh, well, I'm, I'm pro-choice. But then when you say, but would you be okay with a 15-week abortion ban? And then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, 51% say they'd be okay with a 15-week abortion ban. So when you kind of sift through the data, that's not a completely unreasonable point of view to say this is and, sort of roughly where the country's at. And 
it really is like I've, I've talked about that map of Europe in terms of where where uh, how, where how the lines are drawn, and that's very much like Europe. Like almost nowhere in Europe can you get a, just a, an elective abortion. By elective abortion, I mean you're just doing it because you. It's not health considerations. It's you know there's no there's nothing special going on here. Um, uh, the uh, after 15 weeks, it's it's really hard to find a place where you can do that. You know, some places draw it at 15 weeks. Some places draw it at 12 weeks. Some places did have it at 21 weeks. Um, some places draw it at eight weeks. Some places like Poland, you can almost never have an abortion. Um, it's like from consent. But anyway, so there's so there's this range. Um, and and here's what frustrates me about the New York Times coverage. And then I went and looked at Vox and I looked at several others. Is they all... You know, they're starting with Lindsey Graham basically, you know, saying, making two claims. One is a jurisdictional claim and one is a um, uh, a popular opinion claim. And they'd never challenge, they, they don't use any polls at all. You know, if they disagree with him, they should cite a poll that says, you know, they just say, Graham is wrong to say this is where America's at. Most Americans want uh, uh, abortions to be allowed which is a true statement. At some point, most Americans are want, you, you know, everyone you saying that agrees. The New York Times is covering a cultural issue badly. I am saying that. And I know it's not a, <laughs> I know it's not a fresh take, but I think... But, but, I, but no, it, it bears repeating because once again, oh. <laughs> and then I saw my dear friend, I must admit, Lindy Lee, uh, who, who, well, not my dear friend, someone that I respect and who, who I've sort of kept Facebook contact with, um, who ran for congressional seat for the Democratic Party? You know her father. She was president of my class at Princeton. You know, so she was like a student politics person, and then got into the Democratic Party and got a father who was a staunch Republican, sort of conservative, uh, Asian American type dude um, to 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 see the light. Uh, uh, once Trump had come into power, things are terrible. You've got to go down. And I think very, you know, uh, reasonable people have made the shift and she has canvassed and advocated very hard. And often I see she's in the White House, uh, you know, hanging out with Biden, shaking hands, uh, posting selfies, uh, having a blast. Um, and she does some interesting work. But, you know, then I see her on MSNBC, she posts a thing on her Facebook wall, uh, the interview saying, you know, in Europe, uh, after 15 weeks, um, there are caveats. You can still have an abortion if there are health issues or, or, or consensual issues. Whereas, whereas this wouldn't do that, wouldn't allow any of that. And it's like it would. It actually would. Graham has been explicit yeah. about it. If you then go and listen to yeah. his whole speech, he's explicit about it. Um, despite, it would be just despite, like, be yeah. just like so, in Netherlands or Germany or France, countries that are not widely to considered to be um, sort of anti-woman. Uh, Violently right-wing. Uh, yeah, Lindsey Graham is, despite, he's got this sort of, and this is, I mean, one of the many ways that the, the Donald Trump at the center of the universe analysis has ruined people's minds. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, a sort of view of, well, you know, Lindsey Graham is really keen on Trump and he sucks up to Trump a lot, so therefore he must be some kind of extreme right-wing lunatic. But He's really not. <laughs> He's actually kind of more of a moderate in many ways. Yeah, he is quite a moderate dude. He's quite a moderate dude. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so I'm, I'm not saying – and it's not necessarily the case that that's the best law. It's just what's, what's funny, my reading on, on the proposal for that law is I thought what the Republicans are trying to do, they see that the way the debate is framed, they are stuck arguing for the 20%. 
who think conception is when personhood starts. Right. They're sort of stuck so, in that position, not necessarily in terms of policy, not necessarily in terms of that kind of stuff you were talking about, like what is our yeah. position, but in terms of how the debate is framed, they are arguing for 20% against 80%. And on that issue, that means they're losing a lot. And then the hope was voters wouldn't change their mind about who they vote for based on this issue. They'll think it's like kind of peripheral, but that's not the case for some voters. So they're bleeding there. So as a pushback, they're trying to say, let's argue for a position that most people actually agree with. Yeah, that's that, that's clear. It's clear that that's what you, Lindsay's position was. He said, you know, but we it's don't not have, working because we don't have a proposal. <laughs> so let's put one out. But it's and it's not working because that proposal immediately. I, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe I'm not seeing. Um, maybe I'm not seeing. But I went and checked like some centrist publications, well, more centrist, like Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, um, and they didn't. I, I, it, it, all of it seemed to. Um, to uh, undercut the sense in which, to undercut the claim that um, that this is something most people actually agree with, to sort of, to, to, to jump that. And I, I and, and look, maybe, maybe things have changed since I last properly looked at the polls, which was a year ago. Not, um, yeah. But I don't think, look, it's kind of, I don't it's think a difficult one much. to try and work Just out how much of an impact casting that as a radical view sorry what really what i'm trying to say is it keeps yeah. getting cast as a radical view that you should that the feds can maybe draw an upper limit and say look after this point no no state but and really what is going after is new york right where like you can have uh, an abortion at nine months if the doctor thinks that you might get postnatal depression right which yeah. most americans don't think is a good idea um and and you know I, I don't know. Anyway, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh obviously cast his judgment. Like when he wrote in the Dodds case, he wrote his alternative judgment. He said, this must just be for the states to decide. I, when I read that, I think I said on this podcast that, I, you know, I think that that's a naive view. I think that Kavanaugh is making a kind of political argument that I don't think is going to stand the test of time because um, people might want to legislate it. Anyway, I, I kind of think this is all a mistake. I don't think that the federal government is going to successfully draw the line in a way that people are going to be satisfied with. Oh, no, there's no chance. I don't think I the think states are going to... Any of this is going to become a, law. He, yeah, it, it, it was, it was a, like so much of the American legislative process these days was just throwing something up on the table, not with any hope of ever passing it, but just being like, hey, we're waving the flag to show that this yeah. is kind of where we morally are. We're, we're and, not that weird. We're not as weird as we're being made yeah, out to be. And I, yeah, and I don't think yeah. it worked. I, you know, in a way, I think that everyone... I don't think anyone wins from from abortion debates. This is no, anyway, no, that's, that's my yeah, that, that, that's true. Uh, one of the one of the it's been a, there's been a claim so uh, that that actually the abortion stuff isn't really that important to voters. It's it's definitely important to some voters, like some Americans who are probably going to vote for the Democrats anyway. Right, uh, are really jazzed to do. They're more do, energized to do. to do it. Right, you turn out might. Right, so so it's it's difficult to work out, but you know when it, the polls which say, "Do you think that this is is this an important issue to you?" It's usually like sixth or seventh right. or something. So, but you're uh, suggesting that that maybe some of the effect is like, look, I've only ever voted Democrat. I'm 45 years old. I'm but this time I'm not feeling like going out. Sometimes I vote in the in the midterms and in the and in the big presidential elections. Sometimes I miss the midterms. This time I don't feel like voting in the midterms because. I feel like Biden's letting me down. I'm never going to vote for a Republican, but I don't feel like voting for Biden because right. my life's just not going so well. Oh, hold on. The the red people are coming to 
um, crush every, things, yes. every woman's dreams. Um, Therefore, I'm going to go out and vote. Yeah. yeah, so there's some of that going on, but no one knows how big an effect of that is. Uh, there's alternative theories for why the Dems are, are recovering. Um, one of them is that people on the left who are very un unhappy with Biden are now once again saying they're going to vote for him. Uh, that's partly because of this, <laughs> what do they call it? The Inflation Reduction Act, which is described usually by the administration as not an Inflation Reduction Act, despite its name, but as a climate change bill, the largest climate change bill in history, uh, which is just sort of a hodgepodge of various sort of spending things and environmental regulations <laughs> with the name Inflation Reduction Act slapped on and, it. And isn't it also like $10,000 debt forgiveness for every student? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was that was another thing, right? Um, uh, completely, as far as I understand, completely in contravention of the American Constitution, which gives Congress the power to to allocate uh, fund, uh, funding in so many ways. Um, the Biden administration said, hey, uh, $10,000 of student debt, it's going to just be forgiven. And I suspect that this was a cynical ploy, knowing they're going to lose in court, but then uh, that just makes the argument stronger for them to say, oh, well, you have to super duper vote for us uh, if you want this debt forgiveness because we need to be so strong that we can crush the courts. Dude, for $10,000, um, I might vote for you too. Hey? <laughs> Right. So there's that. Uh, so that kind of stuff has pulled a lot of people on the left back because it's, you know, there was this kind of feeling of oh, Biden's just sort of a, a helpless idiot who can't really do anything. And this is, I think, given the the, the left a, a sort of feeling that, uh, no, actually, he, his administration can do things. It's not just flailing around in the, in the darkness. Um, so that's definitely helping them. One of the other theories about why the Dems' chances are improving has got to do with a certain man who currently lives in Florida with an orange spray tan. Yeah. Uh, so the raid on Mar-a-Lago, which we talked a little bit about a little bit a while ago, uh, has, has brought Donald Trump back into the center of the political conversation. At the same time, um, Trump has continued to exercise a very big influence over particularly the, uh, the Senate candidates across the country who gets chosen as a Senate candidate. And there were a whole bunch of very crowded fields. For example, in Pennsylvania, it was a very, very hotly contested primary where the winner, um, Dr. Oz, who formerly, I think, was like Mehmet Oz. I think he was ah! previously. Sorry, on... you said Dr. Oz, and, I, and, I, and a wheel in my chair just fell out. <laughs> he, he was like kind of, I think he was one of these sort of homeopathic guys. I think he was on Oprah's show. But, Dude, he was a pretty um, benign doctor. Oprah brought us Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. And right, he was like right, a right. fairly anodyne. I don't think he was, you know, oh, but he, but I, so, yeah, it's hard to take he didn't that look, seriously. Yeah, he didn't look like he was going to win the Republican nomination for Pennsylvania Senate seat. And then Trump endorsed him and he managed to squeak over the line with like, you know, 200 votes it. out of tens yeah. of thousands kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and he is, shall we say, not doing that great. Uh, so he has a great advantage in this race, which is that his opponent is a Democrat, John Fetterman, had a massive stroke at the beginning of the election campaign. And this is so clear that he is basically trying, because of the stroke, he's basically trying to dodge a debate in the fear that the stroke may impact his performance in a serious way and embarrass himself. And yet he's still four points ahead. <laughs> Even according to the Trafalgar Group, which is a very pro-Republican polling agency, 
that basically called the last election for Trump and is run yeah. by people who are very explicitly in the Trump camp. Yes. And they say yes. that Fetterman is two yeah. points ahead. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> this is an indication no. that ours is yeah. maybe yeah. not the strongest candidate out there. Oh, my word. Um, and he only, only won that seat because in a very contested field, Trump's uh, endorsement made the difference. And there's been a couple of others like that. Another one was J.D. Vance in Ohio. I don't know. Uh, I disagree with you about that. I thought J.D. had it without, without Trump endorsement. He was in third place until Trump's endorsement. Was it? Yeah. Uh, JD is 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 much more of a... He's gone on a strange intellectual journey. Um, but he's also made weird speeches about how... Uh, I think it was him or, or it might be it might be someone... No, I think it was him about how America is waiting for its Caesar to overthrow the decadent republic or something like that. Uh... Which does not make me feel particularly good. So Vance is running for Senate in Ohio. Um, and despite the fact that Ohio went by eight points for Trump, it's a very Trumpy state. Mm. Uh, he's currently polling only about three points ahead of his opponent. And he, in fact, he was trailing up until quite recently uh, against his Democratic opponent. So, yeah, dude. I mean, I it- feel like the analogy here is that, is that the, the, the Republicans are going into this a little bit like New Zealand goes into most World Cups. Uh, you know, it's like uh, they're they're burly and they're yeah, we're the best. We're not going to lose. We don't have to worry about anything, so we can and do what we like. Just amazingly, somehow they always lose. Yeah. Right, right. Um, like despite so, every other team's knock on. Also, oh, Arizona, similar story. Uh, in Pennsylvania for the governorship race, um, it's Doug Mastriano versus a guy called Josh Shapiro. Uh, Mastriano was, I think, at the January 6th riot stuff, he was like, there, he took part, basically. <laughs> so he's, he, he's, yeah, he's a, he's a true believer in the, in the 2020 Donald Trump uh, was, had the election stolen from him thing. Um, he's, he's behind Josh Shapiro, though, by about five points, according to the average, um, including the Trafalgar group there. So, yeah, if I, it's... If I can expand on my metaphor, part of the reason I think New Zealand often falls into the hole is that it it tends to kind of build itself around one particular star maybe one or two but often there's like often it's um it's fly half is just hands down the best fly half in the world so like when dan carter was the fly off of new zealand it's like there's nothing better than dan carter before that carlos spencer and like kids in south africa and and ireland and the US and Japan, you know, if they know anything about rugby, they're going to know that one guy's name from New Zealand. Um, like, like, if you know anyone's name in American politics, you're going to know Trump uh, in the right, last. And it really is a star power thing. And then you congeal the team around that. And somehow yeah. it just always gets somehow fragile. There's like a, it's like a fragile uh, spindly thing, you know, it looks so robust because you're building around kind of the mo- the best player, but it, it doesn't end up working. Now, I'm not saying Trump clearly has a has the most brand power of anyone, right? Flipping, and uh, and he also one of the re- other uh, uh, theories as to why he's affected. So you could say, oh no, those candidates are actually great, and the and the polls are, are biased against them. But one of the things that uh, is definitely true, undisputably, is that the enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrats is closed. So, huge, hey. A yeah, while ago, it was yeah, Republicans were like 10 points more likely to vote in yes, these midterms. And now right. that gap is, I think, two points 
separating uh, the two of them. And that's, and that's very some argument because, because right, yeah. because turnout is a very big thing. And 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 one of the arguments here is that uh, Democrats see Donald Trump's name in the news and they no longer know anything except that they must vote and must wave the blue flag and must charge forward onto the onto the broken glass fields in order to prevent the orange man from taking power again. <laughs> so. it's, dude, it's Jonah Lomu. And the thing about Jonah Lomu is eventually there's like three guys. Every time he gets the ball, three guys are tackling him. Right, right. <laughs> and, then you, so, and then your team doesn't win. He never won. He didn't win a World Cup. You know, he was the best. Exactly. <laughs> so so here's, here's, here's what I'm really trying to say is that I have no idea what is going to happen in these midterms because there are a lot of very good arguments to think that it's going to go either way. Right. Right. Um, but, but that is, is very different. Much, that is very different. Yes. I mean, even last time we spoke, like about this issue, I think yeah. a couple of months ago, it still seemed very. We, I think the last time we talked about this issue, we were talking. It was about the abortion thing, and we were saying the left should speak soberly and judiciously because they are in a position to, to make to a lot of electoral. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was sort of fairly soon after Dodds. Uh, so th that's months ago. It's like May. And, but but yeah. it seemed like even though that advantage is coming down the pipeline, if they use it, which I think they have, or rather yeah. maybe, as you've said, like the Republicans have also botched it by not having a good thing in the waiting to avoid seeming like they're just uh, standing for the, for the, for the evangelicals. Um, you know, at that time, it still seemed like the Republicans were in a, in a, in a much stronger position. And it did, I, I just couldn't see a reasonable argument for thinking that the Democrats were going to do well. But now, I, yeah, now it seems like it's, up, now it's a coin toss. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we'll see. I think the really, <laughs> I think the way American politics works these days, the deciding factor is going to be who messes up more before the election. <laughs> right. right. I think, I, I think the Biden administration is generally pretty incompetent. I mean, for example, uh, some inflation numbers came out recently, which suggested that inflation is not screeching to a halt as, as the Biden administration. No, it's, it's bad, very bad numbers. And on the yeah, same day, Joe Biden's having a little celebration. Yes, they had a party to celebrate the inflation numbers. And you just go, this is... <laughs> I mean, they... Of course, there's, there's also the Mar-a-Lago thing, which could turn into being uh, a win for Trump because maybe the FBI's case completely falls apart at some point. Right. Um, uh, you know, and then the whole a special thing looks master like has been appointed to yeah, to see yeah. if the so that so that's a whole other complicated. Alternatively, um, maybe more kind of uh, uh, twenty twenty election fiddling stuff comes out. Maybe January six stuff comes out that says that makes Trump's allies and himself look bad. Yeah. Maybe there's um, you know maybe the Democrats see some economic improvement uh, before November. Maybe. Uh, who who knows? But there, there, there's so many things I think that, that could swing it right the last minute here. Um, but I do think it's coming down to the wire. And on with with a bit of hesitation because I haven't thought that much about this. I have a strong feeling that a lot of this these races are going to come down quite close to each other. That yeah. uh, whoever wins the Senate is going to all of the races. They may even if they win a whole bunch of seats, each seat will only be won by like one or two points it's gonna be I would not yeah. be surprised okay i'm gonna i'll hold you to it by way of segue um i heard nigel farage talk about british politics um oh, is nigel not, still around i'm not a. <laughs> i've got That's to say i think it's the first time that i've i think it's the first time in five years that i've listened to him for 
like more than two seconds. Usually if he comes up, I don't know, something about him kind of irritated me and I just flicked past. Um, but he was talking about British politics and he sounded just like you, Nicholas. Uh, <laughs> what is he saying? Well, he was basically saying that the Conservative Party has to lose. Um, because well, To be fair, he's been saying of, that for quite a long time, just in different ways. Right. Right. I mean, I he, mean, he was he, the leader of UKIP. <laughs> and, no, but and, then he said... But then in 2016, he said that every all the you know all the UKIP voters must now vote for the for the Tories. Right. He endorsed um, Boris. Right. To I think he did. Yes. His, yeah. So and and kind of you know like gave away the UKIP vote on that as it were. Anyway, so yeah. he's like, no, I want to take it back, but not for myself. Anyway, right. uh, and then and, he, and, he, but, he restarted UKIP in a second guise called Reform UK. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, but his argument was the same as yours. You know, Liz Truss. Uh, well, what, what he, he, his basic argument was that the, the the Conservative Party is not acting like a Conservative Party, and it's the kind of fiddly, infighting soap opera has kind of overwhelmed the the brand identity and 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 policy program uh, that 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 party needs in order to make Brexit a success and in order to. Uh, clamp down the cost of living, you know, their inflation issues and their ballooning uh, budgetary apparently, issues. Apparently, outside. Farage is currently in the is, is, is promoting some gin brands. That's interesting. Sorry, <laughs> As an aside, I was wondering what he's been up to. I know he's been on TV, uh, but I didn't realize he's also getting into the gin business. That's a noble, yeah. Question. There's a there's some good gin somehow seems to attract the uh, the, 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 the creamiest endorsers. I mean, what were. Who's that guy who says, all right, all right, all right, Matthew McConaughey? Doesn't he have a gin yes. brand? Is he? Yeah. yeah, a lot of them do because, uh, as a brief aside, um, George Clooney made, you know, he was a successful actor and then he decided to buy a particular tequila, a tequila brand. And now that tequila has made him multitudes of times more money than his entire yeah. acting career. Yes. And yes. so I think all of the actors have been trying to get on the any one of the yeah. public profiles realize that yeah. creating your own brand of alcohol is yeah. really profitable. And gin's nice because their botanicals give it like a, you know it's got a pretentious quality, yes. well, non-pretentious, like an actual refined. If if you you really can, a very nice one. Anyway, so um, so the UK, I mean you know, and, and Rishi Sunak, uh, sort of uh, Goldman Sachs globalist, Liz Truss. Uh, ooh, uh, kind of does just doesn't come across as as as. She just um, seems a bit awkward all the time. And and uh, you know, Theresa May, Theresa May was not I mean, like the most personable seem... person, but she also felt she she sort of gave that air of competence. Um, yeah, Liz Truss uh, seems kind especially of when she was. Sometimes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like she's foreign, no, she's the minister of foreign affairs, and she's like going to Ukraine before the war to complain about Russia, or you know, and like doesn't know which cities, you know, has like doesn't know what the Donbass is, like. like <laughs> yeah. So and yeah, and that is what I mean. The gaffes, the she's she's a bit of a gaff machine. So anyway, so it's not looking good. For for the U the UK looks like it's uh it's uh it's gonna have another election sooner rather than later. I mean I don't think it's in a particular rush, but I think it's going to have one. 
and that'll that'll be another case where it looks like Labour really has between Labour and the Lib Dems, they have an opportunity to um, to really win. Like a, they, they they are blue, um, the, the blue wave there. Uh, no, wait, they're they're red, right? They're the red. Tories are Labour's red. So yes. so the red wave in the UK. That's what I'm trying to go for. The, <laughs> the red wave is also, in a sense, I think looming and imminent. Um, yeah. But of course, they could they could mess it up too by by going yeah, for and, extreme and, and, candidates rather than. And I, I don't know how much Farage touched on this as well, but just generally that the that the Conservatives have been in power. I have a I have a firm belief, and I've said this before, that if you're in power for too long, yeah. you always get a bit rubbish. Uh, and I think, and that is the perfect segue because the contradiction <laughs> well, that proves the rule. In <laughs> yes, I think with monarchs it's a bit different, especially when monarchs don't have to make any decisions. Not having to make decisions may, it awesome. extends your shelf life in power, quote unquote, for a very long time. And uh, yeah, uh, Queen Elizabeth died, and I. I, for the last couple of years especially, and I don't know really what started for me, but I've really liked the British monarchy. And I don't know how much of that was just because I liked Queen Elizabeth, because I sort of liked her her, her, her style. Um, I liked the way she comported herself in politics, the way she dedicated herself to being that neutral sovereign, basically taking the somewhat absurd idea that a single person can be the embodiment of an entire state. Uh, and really doing it, I think, about as well as any human being has ever done such a thing before. Um, she went out there. She was politically neutral. She worked really hard her whole life. She was calm, collected, graceful, dignified. But at the same time, she had a bit of a sense of humor that would always creak out. Uh, one of my favorite Queen Elizabeth stories, um, uh, it came out relatively recently. It was told by one of her bodyguards. She liked to go on walks in the sort of Scottish uh, highlands around Balmoral estate which is a sort of the royal's holiday home and um, at one point she was walking and she's usually during these walks only accompanied by a single bodyguard and this bodyguard says that uh, she was walking and she came across a group of american tourists who didn't recognize her and she started chatting to them and they were like oh you know this is such a sweet old lady hey uh do you do you live around here and she says yes i live around here say, have you have you you know the queen lives around here have you ever met the queen no way. To which Queen Elizabeth <laughs> responded, "No, no, no, no. I, I, I haven't met the Queen, but he has pointed pointed at her at her bodyguard." <laughs> <laughs> she also famously um, trolled. Uh, uh, I think it was King Abdullah of uh, of Saudi Arabia. Um, this is back in the sort of mid two thousands, um, before Saudi Arabia gave women the right to drive, which yeah. is, I think only happened in twenty eighteen. Um, yeah. He he. So King Abdullah gets into a Land Rover. He thinks he's going to be driven. Him and his interpreter are going to be driven around the grounds with Queen Elizabeth to look at things and, you know, see the estate. And much to King Abdullah's shock, Queen Elizabeth herself climbs into the driver's seat and sets off down these little muddy at a uh, farm roads. <laughs> yes, at a very, very quick trot. <laughs> um, so much so that King Abdullah, uh, through his interpreter, begged her to Stop talking so much. Keep your eyes on the road and slow down. <laughs> Probably thereby extending the ban on women driving in Saudi Arabia for many years. But anyway, <laughs> I thought that that was uh, a delicious sleight of hand that perhaps 
was yes. was a bit a bit bit a bit a bit rude, but at the same time also like he, yeah. he kind of had it coming. Um, but yeah, you know she's really great. She was really great. Um, I think that she also, and I think this is the real thing that her legacy is. She took a very old fashioned, out of date institution, the monarchy, and she made it. Uh, she 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 kept alive its soul while at the same time adopting it for the modern world. You know that the question of how does a democratic liberal country like the UK how is that compatible with a monarchy? Because I think on first reading the answer is it isn't. But I think she really put in a lot of work to show that actually no, this thing can add value, it can attract tourists, it can provide this sort of comforting sense of stability, it can be a national icon, it can have a personality out there that represents your country in a good way. Um, and she. Uh, yeah, she. I think. I think she really showed the way for a lot of monarchs in in Europe and the and the world at large about how you keep alive a monarchy in the twenty first century. And I think she we sorely miss, as someone in her in the many obituaries written about her said, um, she uh, she was the Queen of England during the life during the lifetime of seven billion people on the planet Earth, something like that. She was. The monarch of England, she was the queen, you know. Uh, she had such brand power that if you said the queen, and I know you've been annoyed by this before, Gabriel, um, everyone knew which queen you were talking about, even though there's quite a few kicking around the world. So, yeah, her, her passing is, I think, uh, quite sad, and I worry about Prince Charles or King Charles, I suppose, King Charles III. Firstly, choosing the name Charles, historically not a great name for British kings. Uh, uh, what was it? One had his head chopped off. One was chased out. It's it's been it's not a name that has had a lot of good fortune behind it. Um, he could have chosen any of his other names, but he went with Charles. So you know maybe he's trying to reclaim the name from the bad monarchs. But yeah, I, I, I guess the good part is that Charles has had the greatest scandal of his life already. And unless he goes and shoots someone, it's very unlikely he's going to have a worse news cycle than the whole divorce with Diana thing. I don't know, Gabriel, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I agree with you that she dedicated herself to her job. Um, and it's hard to imagine anyone trying to play that role, that absurd role of embodying yes. a state uh, uh, any better. I think that the... I suppose I do. I do feel I'm. I sort of. I sort of get cut up a little bit, uh, in the sense that, um, and I think you flagged it already. Like there's some people where they're mourning for her. I just that I admire that so much, and then there's some people where it feel it sort of rubs me up the wrong way a little bit. Um, like when Macron said, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, he said, "This is the queen. This is the queen." Elizabeth II was the queen. Um, I I felt like he was making he was reinforcing a really bad mistake. I think it's I think it's a, I think it's a <laughs> sort of a shame that in South Africa, but, if you refer to the queen, uh, people don't think that you're referring to a member of the Zulu royal household or the Sutu royal household or the Tswana royal household. Like we've got a lot of the rain queen would, would right. be my first choice in a way, you know, like I think that there is 
something like I remember Christopher Hitchens often would make the point that Americans have a very kind of you magazine would be our equivalent, a very kind of supermarket tabloid magazine, um, shinsy glam bam attitude towards these British celebrities that the Royal family are, uh, are conceived in, in quite a, quite a crass way. Um, in, in, in the I've, States. And he, and he always felt like, you know, we, you know, America's proudest move is to kind of abolish monarchy, um, but be, become a Republic. And but yeah, isn't that, isn't that just because America kind of, that's how America does celebrity in general. Right. So they're just filtering the Royal family through their own cultural lens. Uh, I think that's probably, yeah. I mean, that sounds definitely right. I th the thing is they could, they could care less though. Like, and I, and in a way I think it, it, Part of me suspects that um, that the other European royal families, um, you know, I'm such a, I, I, the only thing I know about the Dutch royal family is that the last king and queen abdicated quite young and uh, their, um, uh, the, the new king and queen at their coronation ceremony, they, they, you know, not the coronation ceremony itself. They had like a traditional coronation ceremony, but like their first public presentation on a stage in front of the crowds. Armin was like the the biggest town square in the, the Hague or in Amsterdam or wherever it was. There you had like uh, 50,000 people, you know, in the town square dancing to like an Armin van Buren set with like orange <laughs> foam, uh, massive uh, crowns on their heads. And like once he'd like really gotten the crowd going, he's like, okay, now here's for the king and the queen of the Netherlands. And they come out <laughs> and they have a big cross. And that moment obviously worked. And like I, I read some Dutch like serious reporting and whatever. But there's like a um, no one ever thinks about the Danish or the Swedish um, uh, royals, the, excepting when the Swedes go out and uh, participate in, in Nobel ceremonies. But even then, most people don't even. Uh, realize that that's part of the show and part of me wonders um if that wouldn't be better uh for the british royal family if in a way they aren't victims of their own success like i think it's and so I, I, i'm not trying to i'm just trying to say i kind of i'm kind of left cold by south africans who feel like they've got a special connection to that queen unless they actually you know i know someone who was um got an obe um, and had an interesting story to tell about that experience. I met Princess Anne. I've got an interesting story to tell about that experience. You know, like I, you know, I like the name dropping game. I'm down with that. But South Africans who think of her as the queen, it, it rubs me up the wrong way. Um, and I think that um, Harry and Meghan kind of manifest the commercialization <laughs> of that shinsy celebrity outside in thing. And I think it's just so nice also to remember that in contrast to the, to the million people, that, you know, to however many people it was that like to people who stood in a queue for 24 hours in order to go and pay their respects, no. actual no. British people, not necessarily English people, British people, Scottish people, Welsh people, Irish people who, you know, when they got their turn paid. So did you see the, did you see the uh, incredible and, thing and, and, that and happened? Took very great effort, you know. I, and, With the leader, and just that contrast—it's so not you, magazine at that moment. At that moment, yeah. I think it is something special and something awesome. No, I agree. Uh, did you see the wonderful moment when the leader of Sinn Fein uh, expressed his condolences to to King Charles III? 
No, that was that was quite something. So Sinn Fein, of course, was is still to this day they don't take up their seats in the British Parliament. The the, the Sinn Fein leaders in Northern Ireland because they do not recognise the legitimacy of the UK government, and of course the the, the troubles that wrecked Ireland um, that were so awful uh, was 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 very much associated with them. And yet to show how I think how much things have changed there, um, their leader not mentioning that she was the queen, but did give a formal speech saying, expressing mm. condolences to the royal family and things, which I think, I think is a, I was oddly enough. I have a memory. I was in Ireland when the royal family made their first visit. I think it was like their first visit either to, to Western Ireland. Or, anyway, they came to watch a, the, their, their excuse for coming. Uh, so members of the royal family had come, but, the, but her majesty had not come. Um, and so what she came for was to watch a production of a Martin McDonough play called uh, The Call mm-hmm. of Inish Moor, performed on the island of Inish Moor, um, which is this island off the coast of Ireland, which is, uh, you know, like, I mean, it's Winter wider than a Baron it's wider than a cricket pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so green, you know, the, Ireland is especially these green deserts where it's like, if you look at it from above, it's green. Then if you actually walk on it, it's just black rocks. But it, it rains so often that if one seedling of grass can get into a crevice, it will sprout into a very uh, broad plume. So it looks like it's covering the whole surface area. But like, nor horses, nor sheep, nor pigs, nor man can tread there without snapping their ankles. So it's not like anything can eat the grass um, other than maybe a bird. Anyway, um, I think that I think that it is I I and I anyway I just thought it was a masterstroke on her part to somehow have pulled off this diplomatic breaking the ice kind of you know it's like okay the thing's over we've waited a while okay how are we going to do it well we're going to go watch a play rather than go to like a Michael Flatterly you know American putting on an Irish yes. accent doing tap dancing kind of no let's go to the real heart of Irish culture let's like just circumvent dude, a little bit all, of the all you're doing now is explaining what made the Queen so awesome. Is that she was subtle? I respect her. She was subtle. Yeah, I did. I totally. I I respect her. I respect. Um, I respect her work. I just to summarize my view. Um, I think that people who love people who said this is my queen. I am. Why am I standing in a queue for twenty four hours? Because this is my queen, the queen of my country, and I think she served my country well, our country well, and and I want to be part of paying respect to that. That is amazing. People who say she's the queen, uh, who don't, who aren't Brits, I think are kind of so delusional there was another, in a, in a there ridiculous was, way. I think I think there may be an interesting uh, uh, historical wrinkle. To and then, why and the third category is, is people like me who are like outsiders. Are like you know, she's not my queen. She's not the queen. She's just a person, but very interesting person. Yeah. Uh, so there is still a monarchist movement in France, uh, which polls somewhere around. Yeah, well, the, you know, <laughs> there's two different branches. That Which ones do they want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's, it's at least about 10% or something of the last poll I ever read about uh, of the French population that still supports the monarchy. And I think in, in the kind of Parisian culture, there is still a bitterness from the revolutionary days about the monarchy. You know that even during the First World War, there are some indications that um, French troops from the uh, monarchist parts of the country were far more likely to be treated as cannon fodder than, than, 
added parts from that. So anyway, um, and maybe Emmanuel Macron was calling her the queen specifically because he knows that that will annoy the French royal families far more than anyone else. And one, no, totally. one of them, I think it's and, the Orleanist yeah. candidate, actually showed up recently in France because often the monarchs stay out of their home countries that they got chased away from um, because uh, they're sometimes again it's not unusual for them to get arrested yeah uh, so they often live in other countries but the one of the french i think it was the orleanist candidate or he may have been the napoleonic candidate i can't remember showed up in france uh, recently and he's quite like a sort of suave good-looking guy with, with some swag um and and I, i've even seen someone wrote an article about how he you know maybe he could actually make monarchism great again <laughs> which is a terrible Terrible, because <laughs> the French have had a very different relationship with their monarchs, who uh, famously kind of invented the idea of, of 17th century um, monarchical absolutism, uh, a very particular brand of monarchical politics. Who they, I don't think they was, invented that at all. Yeah, I mean, they, I think they no, just no well, them. absolutism was a very specific because, you know, feudal monarchs are not absolute monarchs in the sense that they have to kind of rule by the consensus of the elites. But uh, King Louis XIV was like, no, nah, no. Nah, I am appointed by God and everyone else is a loser and I could do what I want with my bureaucracy. Um, and that I think left a bad taste in the mouths of European people for hundreds of years, because that was some really awful, uh, a whole bunch of countries tried it, not just France, but France was perhaps the ones who pulled it off the most successfully until they, did. yeah, they were the richest. Yes. Until, they until, the until they provoked a revolution against themselves, partly because of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that, yeah, I think, I mean, I think conservatism, conservationism, you know, it's like, it is a, there are things worth conserving. And, uh, um, you know, I've recommended uh, Lord Sumption uh, since, since I first listened to his wreath lectures in, in 2019, former sort of chief mm -hmm. justice of the UK Supreme Court, who then afterwards became a bit famous as like kind of an anti-lockdown warrior in the UK. He, he, his wreath lectures, like he went to, part of the lecture series was to go to Washington and, and argue why, um, why the UK should stick to its unwritten constitution uh, and America should stick to its written constitution. You know, there's, there's kind of, I, I think that people who can, can at least conceptually allow for the possibility that like the same system is not going to be best for everyone um, are, uh, yeah, are in a position to enjoy the finer things in life, you know. I and there's a bit of the one size fits all thing is is definitely more impassioned. Um, uh, France, as you say, uh, Republican through and through, uh, in the in the classical sense of that term. And it would be hilarious. So, I mean, which is also to say, like, he, Macron doesn't need to irritate those people. He can. I mean, the same line was used in the 30s to irritate um, uh, Orleanians and Bonapartists uh, at, at a time when France was fractioning so much that uh, it almost looked like they might have another go at it. Um, and it became sort of fashionable to start calling because uh, because uh, France has awkwardly been on and off with monarchy. They have had they went monarch republic monarch republic empire republic yeah so 
Anyway, so, I mean, I think since we work for the Institute of Race Relations and we have talked about the Queen of England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, uh, and... Uh, Northern uh, Ireland. Let's not let's not start any more problems. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, who, who's, who's also the head of the state of uh, Canada and uh, Australia. Uh, Australia and uh, quite a few countries still, actually. A bunch of Caribbean islands. Six, six um, countries, right? So, yeah. Jamaica, uh, I can't remember all the others. Yeah, so you know, does the Commonwealth survive? And what about race relations and the Queen? I mean, I'll I'll start out by saying, I, I sat yesterday with a friend, a uh, race relations person, who, um, who said, "Dude, just watch the watch the procession with me." I'd already watched it a bit, but he 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 made us play a little game of like, uh, you know, is this is this good or bad for for uh, um, critical race theory or uh, uh, Duboisian uh, soul politics, false Christ stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just turned on at a random moment to watch people go by and uh, a lot of white people, but definitely a lot of people that were not white. Uh, a lot of, yeah, I mean, we just watched for five minutes and it's hard to think of like a, an ethnic, like a, a visible bloodline category that wasn't <laughs> represented. And I've got to say, it really stood out that all of the black people were the best dressed. Like every time a black person came by, that was the best dressed person. <laughs> and I, and I mean that both in sense of style, but also like how expensive the suit was. <laughs> it, was just, it was just kind of funny. Well, yeah, um, yeah you got to, you gotta you gotta be dressed properly for the Queen's thing though. Gotta, what a what a time up. to show off. That is a good time to show off. <laughs> Dude, dudes were wearing very stylish, very uh, very stylish outfits. Um my friend was slightly unimpressed by um the 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 very few people seem to know how to curtsy uh below the age of forty. Uh so a lot of the older ladies were curtsying very well, and then the rest were were, were, do, do, he, were doing what he described as Japanese head bows, which I thought was an inaccurate description. But anyway, a funny way of looking at it. And so you know there is a, a shifting decorum, and but yeah, anyway. So I mean, I think um, that that one of the uh, uh, wonderful things about the royal family, notwithstanding uh, Meghan's allegations that it was like outright racist and that she had to flee to another country to make millions of dollars because of how awful the Awfully racist the family is that uh, you know as as I recalled at the time that that was a sort of hot story the BBC sent some people to to go and talk about Mary and, ha and Harry's wedding and um, they went to you know this this journalist was black from Birmingham went to a, a majority black suburb in Birmingham to a hair salon to ask people what their views were and her mom was been psyched about it and like she was like asking these questions like but you know are you psyched because finally we've got like a black person marrying into the royal family and the people in the hair salon these black ladies were like what are you talking about firstly megan's not black secondly that's nothing to do with this the royal family is just amazing and she's like she is black like her aunts they were like oh my god honey you, you're like you're just you're you're not you're not seeing the wood from the trees here <laughs> yeah i also think that there's a little bit that this whole story of how this has been played in the kind of uh, I don't know, the sort of main, uh, mainstream doesn't feel like the right word, but whatever, is that, you know, they were always against Megan, but that really wasn't the case. No, Megan only became a controversial character halfway through.
Yeah. But anyway, so, you know, so I think the royal family is actually, the British royal family, I think, is good for race relations. Um, by and large, I think that um, they have, I think they've, I think they've been, you know, her and uh, Philip, I think both um, uh, went around the world and engaged with people respectfully and kind of set a good example for treating people as people. He Philip also you know, had some a bit awkward. <laughs> some, but I think as we pointed out, some, like, like, I think he was often funny, like, and I don't, anyway, I, yeah. I think that, I think that if you judge no, we, the, we the, 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 the cooking by the eating, um, it you know it just seems to me once again like a lot of people from that that come from a lot of different bloodlines. Uh, you know the, the UK to me is just. I think the most inspiring thing about this for me is that the UK is a country built out of different bloodlines. England mm -hmm. is like Anglo's. You know, there's Anglo's and Picts and Saxons and whatever. But then you know it's like what Welsh, Irish, Scottish. There are clear manifestations of different bloodline expression and, and, uh, that have survived in the modern age and this it's has been always one of the stories on transcending that on being valuable right, of, of of queen elizabeth's um uh of her of her reign is that during her time um the empire in a sense kind of bled back into the metropole into the heartland not just in terms of like as you say, in the sort of crude sense of the bloodline and what people look like, you know, Britain's a more multiracial society than it was in the past, but also in kind of, I think, cultural terms, like the way that, uh, you know, for example, Indian food is very popular now in the UK and has become kind of really part of British cuisine. Um, and tea, by the way. And tea, right. And, you know, there's, the, there's <laughs> Britain, Britain has continued to sort of absorb people uh, and, and make them British. <laughs> Which is a which is a thing that quite a lot of countries struggle with. Um, France, France has struggled with that for a long time as well, despite the fact that it's really tried hard often to make people French. Uh, in modern France, I think it's struggled with that a bit. Well, I, I think I think part of it is that you can opt in to you know make is a tricky word. You know, people get to opt into a society that has a sense of pageantry. It has a sense I of. Think, I think in the case uh, of the French, they really do try to make people French. <laughs> I think that's the right word to use there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. Um, and I, and I think maybe that's a sense of the backfiring. And and this is just a you know this is a point that libertarians often struggle with. Is that they, you know, there's a kind of way of being anti-monarchical, which is that you think that the state, no government in the first place should be in the esteem business. The queen hands out knighthoods and OBEs and like uh, chops people on the shoulders. That's one very real esteemy sense in which she is the fount of esteem or the king is the, the monarch is the fountain of esteem. And, uh, and there are so many others. I mean, the fact that the whole country is kind of only on one issue right now, you, this mad parade you know a million people are flying into london to just be closer to the funeral uh every president in the world wants to go there excepting for a, a few it's like a there is a very very successful esteem enterprise going on there an, an esteem team uh that is attractive the, the thing about esteem that's different to, to power and and and, uh, and property exchanges is that is that it's inherently seductive you know it's inherently not about making you do a thing it's about like you arrive here and you and you kind of uh i don't know i mean when i went to the uk of course we went to the tower of london and the and the dungeon and the you know you one couldn't help but engage with both gory 
amazing medieval like scary stuff that kind of draws you in even if you're a bit anti you're like well that's cool i mean that's dark and heavy and you know and then uh and then just to be a little bit impressed by by the by the pageantry um and it, it sort of reminded me of the title of ford maddox ford uh series of books he was you know one of those hanging out with fitzgerald and hemingway and gertrude stein and all those cats in paris between the wars um and uh wait between the wars before the war between the wars yeah between the wars um and uh he wrote parades end uh and 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 it was a uh, the, the sort of through it's like downton abbey but but really classy you know he was he was writing at that time after world war 1 about a kind of collapse in um, British majesty, um, in particular, the, the the martial spirit of the United Kingdom had been crushed. Uh, the idea that war was noble was the highest calling for a patriot had been replaced with the idea that, you know, young men had been forced to bury, dig their own graves, rot in them first and then die in them often sent into the teeth of barbed wire and mines and and uh, rapid fire uh, automated i mean automatic uh, machine guns by incompetent landed gentry who who didn't really know what they were doing and these are memes that have grains of truth and exaggerations and untruths but but the but the memes were overwhelmingly strong and and very much reinforced by the actual depreciation of wealth in the British landed aristocracy. And Thomas Piketty's got the really good data on this. The British total net wealth relative to GDP before World War I was about 8 to 1, 7 to 1. And by after World War I, it had come down to 5 to 1. They lost two years' worth of GDP in wealth. Uh, so if you look at all of the damage to for farms and towns in France, you, you, that was 5% as much as the damage that had been done to the British economy, partly because people had bought Russian bonds and when the communists took over, they reneged on that, partly because international trade uh, had been uh, uh, radically undermined. So people who were invested in companies around the world uh, either lost their assets entirely or saw their value share depreciate um, radically, you know, it was just a huge, it was like, so it's like hard to get, it was much worse than the global financial crisis. Um, and from Britain's perspective, it was actually more of a wealth reduction than the 1929, uh, great depression and the, and the, and the years that came after that. So there was this huge capital crunch and that largely fell on the, on the nobles, on the people who had been enjoying inherited wealth um, because the most dynamic entrepreneurs were able to navigate the choppy waters and find opportunities in it. And those tended to be, you know, the, the, the sons and daughters, but mainly sons of, of, uh, uh, you know, merchant class um, up and comers and so on. So, so parades end just sort of uh, embodies in a particular story, this, this idea that the pageantry has held the empire together for so long. And now 
that is no longer working and and it particularly sort of centers on marriage and and the and the and the kind of pomp and ceremony that tends to go with marriage it's like this is over this is not working anymore the empire is going to crumble which it surely did um and i and I, and I, and the last parade turns out to be the most magnificent was sort of one of the better ironies you know the marriage that really didn't work so well is the like second marriage that's like just done on the rush and whatever the first marriage that has that is the last parade that one that one ends up being a bit of farce and and part of me wonders whether we are seeing the parades end that there is something of a relief like there are a few silly billies like I mean, that's the nicest thing you could say about Julius Malema. I'd, I'd rather find another predicate, but while I'm in a good mood, you know, there are some people who have just acted as if uh, Elizabeth, this woman, um, had personally enslaved millions of black people and uh, no. stolen, the, you know, granny's uh, pension money in order to uh, gamble it away. Uh, like and and yeah, can you imagine ignored... doing that, that? what a what an atrocious moral act <laughs> steal the pension savings of old ladies yeah whoever would have done that but you whoever know so <laughs> cough cough the... malema cough <clears throat> so um... so there is there is this, this brutal hypocrisy but but i think and a, and, a, and a negligence of the fact that the united kingdom uh, did stand at the forefront of civilization in the first half of the 19th century. It abolished slavery. It developed trade, industry, science, respectful, uh, not just reason-responsive democracy, but a kind of consensual democracy that sort of was willing to make room for um, the idiosyncrasies of history. So many wonderful things. So many, so many wonderful things that kind of get thrown under the carpet if you say, well, the whole royal family is terrible going back generations. And if you just look at her, so much hypocrisy there. That all being said, I think it's a tiny minority of people that have really stood out to say that kind of crazy stuff. Even in America, one professor said awful things about the queen, like, oh, die a cold, bitter death, whatever. And she was suspended. You know, it's like, and for, for the way that uh, racy issues go, I think there's been an unusual level of, of unanimity. Wokeness may be powerful, but it's not powerful enough to defeat the queen. <laughs> That, so I think that is, dude. I, I venture to suggest that that is the mood, and that no one is willing to say it because it's because it's such a rare thing to just feel mm. like you can breeze past those silly conversations. Like you don't have to get. No one has to go and debate Malema about this. It's like just just overwhelmingly, almost everyone already knows that he's a fool, and the and the people who don't are are sleeping with him. You know, or right. like. You know, so, the, but that being said. Maybe it's parades in. Maybe this is the, maybe this is the last hurrah. You know, uh, maybe Charles um, manages to be quiet and old. I think his first speech was really good. I think he very clearly did say that um, he's not going to be pontificating about climate change and you know political issues are gonna are gonna tone down. But yeah, after and, that, and the the number of people who support who thought that he would make a good king jumped from thirty percent to sixty percent. Than days kind of becoming king, yeah. So that's good, but I wonder if he. And so now I come to, and and now I'm going to wrap the two ideas that I have together. I've been very long-winded, Nick, but basically, my, you know, I think that the, the United Kingdom faces this challenge that I don't think it has the charisma, and William and Kate coming up, I think they're wonderful. I think Kate is amazingly good-looking, and I'm saying that uh, I don't think that's an offensive that's, thing to say. <laughs> I think that she's very stylish. In, and, in the game of princesses, this really counts. <laughs> she, 
she's extremely stylish she seems like every time i hear her say something it's it's it seems intelligent and and like her words are well chosen and her issues are well chosen like the you know uh champion of the rugby team i like that she has taken up that role but kind of gender bender but without being woke you know it's cool it's like great i'm i'm i like them and they and they are charming but i don't think that they have i don't know dude i just kind of feel like sorry the two ideas are that on the one hand um there's like the the my queen people and on the other hand there's the the queen people the outsiders who who kind of like stuck themselves onto the royal family, but just in this um, quite hollow way. And I think that the, the queen people are, are a little bit dangerous to the project overall. And on the other hand, I feel like after her passing, the, the queen people are going to go away or not go away, but they're going to reduce. It's, oh, yeah, it's sure. going to be a less impressive royal family. And so, so in yeah, a way Charles that's just sad, not going to be able to carry things. But maybe that's the same. best thing for them. If people care less outside of the UK, but they continue to care in that respectful way inside of the UK, maybe that's the outcome. Maybe that's the best outcome that they can hope for. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe not. I, maybe they need to keep growing. Maybe it's maybe the. No, I, is, I, I think I think there may be a point there. Um, you know that being fashionable is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, and and I think you're right to highlight the dangers that being fashionable might have. But we'll see. I mean, uh, look, I, I think you're definitely right in 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 the, the the swag of the British monarchy decreasing during Charles's reign. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe it'll come back when William is crowned because that's going to be a whole that, that people are going like, to make a lot of money off those TV rights. I think. Yeah, uh, and that'll be interesting to see. I think it's only to that, but I mean, if you think about it, like the crown, I don't know, there's just, there's this symmetry, you know, like Elizabeth and Philip's uh, uh, wedding and her, I think their wedding was like the first thing or something that they did together very early on in her reign was like the first, maybe it was her coronation, was the first. I think it was her uh, crowning ceremony. Yeah, it was one of the was first, the first live televised, televised yeah. yeah. And by the end of it, you've got the crown, you've got this like fictionalized drama but it's not supposed to be fictionalized it's supposed to be an accurate representation but with just a little bit of shortcuts taken to condense the story sort of bio biopic about the family that's in seven series and you sort of go through elizabeth's toughest times with diana's not just the divorce but also the death and the and the sort of snarky comments and all you know it's like it is you know history doesn't get a chance to you know facts don't get a chance to kind of distill before being um recast through, through the lens of creative editorial <laughs> expression uh, that raw footage uh, is immediately overwhelmed by the meme and uh, and so maybe you know I think the gloomy side the gloomy version is that this is the parade's end because the funny the, the less uh, charismatic guys Charles is going to keep going for another 20 years and uh, by the end of it it will have kind of really dampened um, a lot of that side of things, but the but the gizmo uh, money making, money spinning, um, uh, lucrative side of things. Harry and Meghan have paved a path. They're going to keep uh, knocking at it, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if more cousins and uh, sons and daughters and so on, kind of do this thing of, of like, okay, we're going to leave the family, 
but then we're going to use our name to like bash the family. And, you know, so there's like team, you know, it's like team Bonaparte versus team Orleans in its own whole new way. And I think that's, <laughs> I think it's just, it's kind of, it's going to, I'm already well, bored I, with this. You know, I'm already yeah. bored. It hasn't, it hasn't, it has already sort of happened and I'm already bored, but like, I can see it. I can just see it winding through the gears forever because humans love this kind of contest that Democrats versus the Republicans, the Tories versus the Labour Party. You know, we love a little um, one-on-one uh, endless rehearsal of the same kind of clash thing. And with, <laughs> with monarchies, the thing is they stuck, you know, <laughs> the casting is permanent. Yes, <laughs> it goes on for a very long time. <laughs> um, anyway. All right. I think I think we should start wrapping up now and go to recommendations because we're almost at two yeah. hours. Uh, but I have one final question for you: Orly honest or Bonaparte? Uh, uh, gun to the head. I would yeah. uh, grab the gun, shoot them both. <laughs> no man, <laughs> have to pick one. Fate of the world depends on it. You know, it reminds me when I was in high school. Um, <laughs> We were talking about BEE and, uh, you know, boarding house. Anyway, most, I think everyone was black. So, uh, anyway, um, they said, dude, what about you? Like, which side would you be on uh, if there was a race war in South Africa? Because you're, yes, you're you, kind of in the brotherhood. You uh, and, and you came up with the answer, the side that was the most just. Yes. I remember this. I remember this. But no, no weaseling out of this one. No, that dude, I've, it's exactly the same answer. I, I really, <laughs> dude, I don't like Team White. I don't like Team Black. Uh, if there was a race war, I'd want to be on Team Non-Racial. But if that's not going to win, you know, fight for the side that's like uh, that's got the better cause. Um, so, if you if you have to fight, if the Orleanians and the Bonapartists were were going hammer and tongs at it, honestly, what I would do is I would move to another country if I was stuck in France. But if I had to fight, I would choose the side that was like uh, that had the better argument. So the correct answer is Orleanists because the Bonapartists are jumped up dictators. But anyway, that's neither here nor it's, there. Um, no, yes, no. I know that's what you want. I know that's what you think. It's good. It's, and that is also a, an acceptable view. But, I mean, you know, aesthetically, that is definitely the much more appealing of you. Um, but, dude, the Orleanian family was... They're much oh more my. useless than the Bonapartists, but oh my word. you don't they necessarily so want bad, useful dude. kings. Dude, you so don't necessarily bad. want useful kings. <laughs> so bad. Useful kings have a have a habit of starting wars with Germany that they then lose. I.e., do you know why Orleans is called why New Orleans is called New Orleans and why Louisiana is called Louisiana? Well, they're named after Louis and Orleans and, and the Orleans. Because John family. Law, because John mm. Law was like he has, I, I, I went, John Law launched a pyramid scheme and got the French government to rubber stamp it because in exchange he promised them <laughs> that he would name the new world after the king and it tanked. He created the first, he, he created the first true bond market crash. It, 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 <laughs> it bankrupted <laughs> off of Paris and, and, and this happened like, and, and started, that was the essential ingredient in Niall Ferguson's opinion. I agree to building up to the 1789 revolution, which not only saw the, the vicious chopping off of lots of people's heads, but also kind of 
just the Americans had just had such a good revolution. Revolution was in a good space, and the French ruined revolution. We are still <laughs> by doing a really bad one that every every idiot revolutionary since has tried to copy has tried for to some copy. reason. Yeah, uh, yeah. even though and, it was a and you can trace it all back to the king being like, "No, this is a terrible idea. You are going to debase the entire Frank. Uh, you are going to make it. no, 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 no. Don't worry, mate. I'm going to call it New Orleans." Oh, sacre bleu, but let's you, do it. Uh, fabulous. But but you see, no, no, you know, no, 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 no. descendants, no, heirs of Charlemagne, heirs of Charlemagne as compared to the descendants of a Corsican officer. All I'm saying is, heirs of Charlemagne win out. No, no, <laughs> but, but no. Let's give recommendations. They are both, they are both rubbish. It's very hard to say they're both rubbish. I'm, 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 the older I grow... The harder I realize it, it really is hard. They are both rubbish, Nicholas. <laughs> All right. So my, my recommendation for this week yeah. is a, is an article from Foreign Affairs called The Weakness of Xi Jinping. It's written by a guy called, um, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, Kai Xia, I think his name is, uh, C-A-I-X-I-A. Uh, he was a... So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's always, it's like, I think behind one of those soft paywalls where you just have to like register your account with, with the, with the magazine, but you don't actually have to pay any money. Um, but regardless, uh, he was a member of the sort of Chinese communist party upper bureaucracy. He was, he was a, a professor at the, at the party university and he, Charts in brief the changing power dynamics of the leadership in the Chinese Communist Party over the years, and it's sort of it's the origins of its current factional breakdown. Um, how it moved from sort of dictatorship under Mao, then it moved into a kind of much less um, focused on the individual dictatorship of Deng Xiaoping. Then it turned into more of a sort of oligarchical thing where everyone in the senior Politburo had basically a veto over all decisions, and how Xi Jinping has reversed this. Uh, 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 and is uh, anyway, this guy's not a fan of Xi Jinping, but it's just interesting to read about because um, I, I think it's, it gives some interesting insight. I don't know what to make of him as a writer because he was, uh, he's, he's now lives outside of China, he fled, um, but he still says that he keeps in contact with some of his friends in the TCP. And I think it's an interesting narrative about the inside of what China looks like. Um, Anyway, I'll put it in the in the show notes. To, to I saw to that one. I'll be I'll be, yeah. but I I'll be happy to check that out. I I'm going to recommend a an interview. So yeah, I always I worry about like recommending like interviews or podcasts because it's like, well, we don't want you to leave us. But if you want to listen, no, if, to you, if you else, if you listen to if you listen to <laughs> podcasts already, you're more likely to listen to more podcasts, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. I, this is really a recommendation. I think that. You, uh, a lot, many people would enjoy. Um, me, uh, so the the discussion, the the subject of the discussion is Salmon P. Chase, um, who was the um, I don't know how to describe him. Kind of like let's say the lawyer behind abolition in the United States. He was. He was a lawyer who um, sort of grew up pretty racist, like most 
almost every white American at the time in the sort of 1820s, something somewhere around there. Uh, but like very hard bitten sort of anyway. Uh, on some sides of the family, but also like some you know some 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 wherewithal and. Uh, he goes to Cincinnati uh, once he's got his law degree because he thinks like a sort of boom town, but that's quite small. He he can he can he was ambitious. He wanted to be the biggest lawyer in town. He thought that's a good place to go try and do it. Could do it in a few years rather than sort of trying and always failing in in an old city like Boston. He then gets black clients um, who are kind of uh, in property rights cases, labor rights, labor law cases. And he he's, he sees the lights a little bit. He he sees how the system's not treating them fairly. He sees how um, human interests are just not being taken seriously. And he 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 becomes an advocate for. Uh, he allows himself to sort of uh, to be identified as someone who thinks that black people should have equal treatment before the law as white people. And that was tough at the time um, in a couple of senses. One of the important senses was that the American um, anti-slavery movement, uh, you know, often ended up sounding like, well, look, black people are inferior, but you can't enslave anyone. So we are, we are not for black people being allowed to vote. We're not for black people being allowed to participate on equal terms in civil society we're not black judges that's crazy talk um uh, but what we are saying is is they shouldn't be slaves right so um that was kind of the like that was already um obviously very controversial thing to say um from the point of view of pro-slavery people which was kind of everyone in the south and quite a lot of people in the north and and as as this as the biographer Walter Starr has it, you know, when Salmon P. Chase starts getting into this debate, into this public debate, really there are abolitionists of the kind that I've just described who are like, well, slavery is bad, uh, but but equal, you know, uh, but apartheid is good, um, uh, using different language, and uh, and then there are. The pro-slavery camp, and then the third camp, the camp that he's kind of in, you know, equality before the law camp, that is only occupied by pretty crazy Christians, um, you know, some Quakers, some, you know, people that are kind of not taken seriously in intellectual terms because they're really making arguments from faith. They're saying, uh, you know, the, here is a moral argument that you know, if you if, if that you you that's that's just not grabbing people that are outside of the sect. Um, so. He has uh, pretty powerful rhetorical abilities, but he's really got quite powerful uh, writing skills, and 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 you know he's good at finding good cases, and he he builds up a lot of cases and loses a lot of cases before the Supreme Court. Um, well, that that kind of end up, man, losing losing is not nice, but it does offer him his clients a stage to make arguments for equality before the law um, that get transmitted around America. And, and this is just a part of the history that I, that I had no idea about. And, 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 and he, and, and, and this biographer, Simon, uh, uh, what's his name again? Walter Starr. Um, he, he makes the case that 
sort of even two years before Abraham Lincoln is elected president, that Salmon P. Chase is much more well-known, much more respected um, than Lincoln and kind of a more obvious candidate to, to run for the Republican Party um, and a more obvious, uh, anyway, you know, more, definitely more of a thought leader, a kind of guy who, who while Abraham Lincoln was still very much um, arguing against black rights, uh, Salmon P. Chase was arguing, arguing for black rights or, or rather human rights being being. Uh, so the 14th Amendment, you could say the 14th Amendment, uh, which emerges out of the Civil War, um, that, you, you know, anyway, the argument is that, that Salmon P. Chase is, is, uh, should, should get top billing in terms of the authorship for that. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. I'd never even thought about, I just had this, you know, I watched the movie about Lincoln and, and this great love of Lincoln's rhetorical style and his, you know, the Gettysburg address is just a masterpiece. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, Lincoln had to be, had to do the job. Like Sam P. Chase was not charming. He never would have won the presidency. He was not a politician. He was not a good politician. Anyway, little detail. He, uh, he becomes Lincoln's uh, uh, finance minister, we'd say. Um, and in so doing kind of makes the dollar like cash money dollar, like dollar is a unit of account that already exists, but this dude made the dollar like on top of other things also made like the federal reserve, uh, in its, in its like modern iteration. Um, anyway, so like had, had, had a range of, uh, uh, impacts that I think generally positive, um, just like quite a, yeah, slightly under the radar. Certainly seems to have somewhat been neglected by history. Kind of a dude, and this uh, and the biographer is this like wonderful guy who was like a very successful lawyer who stepped back and just started writing about, you know, I've got to say, abolitionists, uh, Lincoln's Lincoln's men is sort of like the the catchall for for the for the people whose biographies he writes. And I think that there's something very special about the moral move to end slavery. Um, mm. And in America's case, to achieve, you know, the, the Brits ended slavery, but they didn't quite get to equal rights in the, you know, uh, but anyway, the 14th Amendment is a triumph. It's another triumph of humankind. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's such an important thing. Um, and that's my recommendation to, to just get an hour, of that kind of intelligent discussion just about that person. Awesome stuff. All right. And with that, I bid you all a fair week. We shall speak to you soon. And uh, yeah, keep that flag of liberty flying. Yeah.